praise the Lord. Welcome to this Sunday message, Sunday the 29th of January 2023. The title of this message is a question. Always good to ask questions when we approach God. And bear in mind, God wants us to have answers. He doesn't expect us just to do things most of the time without a good understanding of what he has in mind. But the question that I'm going to pose this morning is, why praise? Why praise? Now, most Christians will tell you that the Bible instructs us to praise the Lord, and many of us are well-versed in doing it. But it's important to realize that with everything that God tells us to do, He's always got a good reason. He never does something for the sake of entertainment or anything else. And it's important, you see, for us to understand why He wants us to praise Him. Please bear in mind that whatever God wants us to do, ultimately, is always for our benefit. And you see, the advantage of having an understanding or some understanding of why equips us to better do what he's instructed us to do. I'm not suggesting that you and I have to be told why on every occasion. Very often he just asks us for obedience, but there's always a reason. However, the Bible has quite a lot to say about praise. And we need to understand it. We need to understand what it does and why God instituted it. And once we understand that, or have a better understanding of that, we equipped, or positioned rather, to try and understand how we must go about this praise business, if I can call it that. The key scripture in this whole regard for me is found in Psalm 22. I'm going to be reading from verse 1 to verse 3. This is David, once again, writing out his innermost feelings and creating poetry in a way with it, for the benefit of Israel. But he says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? and from the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. That's the key phrase I'd like us to focus on. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Heavenly Father, bless this teaching to us, I pray. May it be a benefit to all of us as you, Holy Spirit, inspire the teaching, not only inspire the teaching, but enlighten our understanding that we might grasp what it is that your word is saying. We ask it in the wonderful name of Yeshua. Amen. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Some translations put it this way. You are holy, who inhabits the praises of your people who dwells in, inhabits the praises of your people. Now, what I want us to understand is that God, above all, and this is so important to grasp, above all, wants to be with us. He loves to be with his family, with his children. Now, you might say, well, God's omnipresent. If he's not omnipresent, he's not God. Yes, that is true. We're not denying that. But there needs to be this fundamental understanding. Although he might 
very well be omnipresent, that does not necessarily mean that you and I are aware of him, aware of his presence. You see, and there's a connection between being aware of his presence and him being able to manifest himself. If you go to some dingy night spot where there's drugs flowing freely, alcohol and whatever kind of sin you can imagine, God is there for sure. But it takes exceptional circumstances for his presence to manifest there. In fact, the truth of the matter is, there's manifest presence of the other side of the spiritual divide, the kingdom of darkness. Hence the name, Den of Iniquity. You understand? But you see, obviously church is not supposed to be, God forbid, a den of iniquity. It's supposed to be a temple where God inhabits. You see? And if we can understand that his presence in our midst, let me say rather his tangible presence in our midst, is very closely associated with the whole understanding of praise in the broader sense of the term. You think of Israel of old, and the obvious example is the building of the temple. They built that temple, this is Solomon's temple, for seven years. And they quarried away from the site so that there would be no sound. So you can just imagine for seven years, almost complete silence reigned over this place as this magnificent edifice in that day and age was being constructed. The day comes, of course, with the dedication and Solomon in all his glory, all the priests, and all the priests includes a whole lot of musicians, and the whole of Israel comes to Jerusalem and to be part of this dedication occasion. The Bible in Chronicles is very clear that they sang this one song, God is good, his mercy is everlasting. They sang the national anthem, basically, over and over again. And... There were trumpets, tambourines, cymbals, singers, a vast array of musicians. And this whole event picks up, God is good, his mercy is everlasting. The grand finale comes and then all of Israel is assembled, Solomon gets up to talk and speak. And then it says in the word of God, the house is filled with the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God. So heavy is that presence that the priests are unable to stand. In other words, it was a physical manifestation. As you and I learn how to praise and worship God, there's no limit to the amount of his presence that can be manifest in our midst. And so for that reason, you see, perhaps above all other reasons, we need to understand what praise and worship is. Now, you'll notice that it says, he inhabits the praises. He is enthroned upon the praises of his people. We must understand that praise and worship is not just a group of people getting together and having a sing-along. There are certain other elements that need to be part of the equation for it to be a godly supernatural experience. We must realize that music, by virtue of its nature, very nature, is spiritual. In the sense that when any human being makes music, there is a movement from the physical into the spirit world. And that can be for good or for bad. You see, it all depends on the condition of the spirit of the musician and what it is that they are 
singing or playing. Now, just to add to this mix, it's very important that for God's presence to manifest amongst his people, the music that we play must be what we can best describe as anointed. In other words, it must have supernatural power. We can't go into too much detail with this. But you see, when the music that is played, or the worship and the praise, is anointed, has supernatural power, it breaks through the veil which is separating us from the experience of God's presence, you see. And the way for that anointing to operate is, if the music is played under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but also that music, and this is inseparable, must be based on the Word of God. It must be based on the Word of God. You see, when you have that combination, where there is an anointed playing of music and the words that are sung, the sentiments expressed, are firmly based on the Word of God, that's when the anointing is released and the people involved, their faith grows. You see, their faith grows. We can't get away from faith. Faith comes from hearing the Word, you see. And when we involve ourselves with the Word of God, we release faith. And you see, as you've said so many times, when we release faith into the atmosphere around us, it empowers God to manifest, you see. And that's the key to praise and, in a sense, worship. I haven't got time to go into great detail, but my point is this. Why do we praise God? Well, we praise God, obviously, to show admiration for Him, to worship Him, etc. And that's very good for us because it focuses our attention on Him and minimizes our attention on ourselves, you see. But the great benefit is that as we do it under the anointing, we create a throne, in a sense, where God can come in and dwell. And there's no limit to the extent of that dwelling, as it were, that manifestation in our midst, to the place where it can be physical. You see, people might say, oh, well, that's the Old Testament, what happened in the temple. Yes, it is. But remember, it's a pattern for what we're supposed to be doing now, and we're under a much better covenant. So how much more of God's presence should we, and in many cases are, experience? Should we be experiencing all that? So you see, it's very important to grasp that when you and I gather together to praise God, as we focus our attention on Him, and as we sing songs, like I've said, that are based on the Word, here in our church, we insist that anything that we sing, if it is not the exact Word of God, it is closely linked to the sentiment of that Word. The difference between a psalm and a hymn, basically. But you see, as we do that, and God is, it might seem strange, but He's empowered to dwell in our midst. There are other reasons for it, but we can't go into too much detail in a short space of time. It is quite involved. So, but let's just understand that God wants to be with his people. When we praise him and worship him, we create an environment where he can do exactly that, you see. Now, the next question is, well, 
if that's what praise and worship is about, how are we supposed to go about it? Can I say once again in this regard that the book of Psalms is our textbook. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, when there was contention in the church, it was James who came up with the suggestion that the answer was to be found in the Old Testament, you see. And not in the Old Testament in general, because that's the only testament they had, but specifically the reference to the tabernacle of David. Now, the tabernacle of David, for our information, was essentially a tabernacle of praise. You see, David understood these things. And in a sense, he instituted them in Israel. That's why it was he that penned that scripture. You are holy, who dwells in the praises of your people. He had a firm understanding of that, which is why he wrote so many psalms to achieve just that, God's presence in his people's midst. And going on from that, after David's time, we see music and praise and worship playing a vital role in Israel's history on a few occasions, being the reason why they could overcome overwhelming odds in military battle. On one occasion, they sent their singers, on God's instruction, the musicians, the head of the army. And on that occasion, God himself destroyed their enemies before them. All they had to do was pick up the spoil. They see this music business is extremely, extremely powerful. But the question we need to ask, and this is really important, how are we supposed to go about this praise? And as I say, the answer is to be found in the book of Psalms predominantly. And a very interesting study is the study of the words that we translate very often as praise. Once again, this is a vast subject. We haven't got time to go into it in detail. But what I would like to do is just focus on a few words that I believe capture the spirit of the kind of praise that God is looking for. The kind of praise that he can inhabit, you see. Now, a lot of people say, oh, well, every church must decide how they are going to praise God, each man to himself, depending on their culture, etc., etc. There's an element of truth in that. But there are some general principles, and we must be careful of limiting our praise experience to what I will call our comfort zone. You see, sometimes God expects us to go out of our comfort zone, not to be foolish, not to be silly, but because of the great blessing that he has there. And you see, many people might say, oh, well, we've been doing it this way for many years. This must be the right way to do it. And very often they will say that, but they will not say that based on an understanding of the word. As we've said so many times in our church, we like to follow what we see written clearly in the word of God. And it's very instructive, as I said, if we look at some of these words. The most predominant word you'll find in the Old Testament, which is translated as praise, is the Hebrew word halal. Alright, that's the word we get hallelujah from. And if you look in the concordance, Strong's concordance, you'll see that there's quite a vast range of understandings of that word. But all of them speak about 
liberating praise. The one phrase that you'll find there is to be clamorously foolish. To be clamorously foolish. To make a noise. We've got a song we sing in our church called Holy Hullabaloo. <laughs> Holy Hullabaloo. And uh, apart from all the fun, there's a lot of truth in that. Hullabaloo, in a sense, is a word in the English language that describes halal. When we praise, there should be a hullabaloo. Now, a lot of people say, oh, no, no, we like to be conservative. We like to be quiet. We like to just be contemplative. Well, you can be what you like. You see, with God, you can be exactly what you like. God doesn't insist on anything, and neither do we, by the way. But you see, you and I can choose to go to hell if we want. God won't stop us. You see, the Bible's not about what you and I can't do. We need to grasp this fact. The Word of God is more, to my mind, about what we can do. You see? And the essence of anointed praise is this, this complete abandonment, you see. If you analyze it, if you think about it clearly, we have everything to be completely abandoned about. To think that we've been spared going to a terrible place, the place we deserve to go, namely hell, because of somebody's sacrifice. And all the promises that he's given us, we've got a lot to shout about. A lot to shout about. Now you see, once again, it's not a case of just being foolish for the sake of being foolish. Let's pick up the spirit of it. There's freedom. Where the spirit of God is, there's liberty. And you see, we're not suggesting that we just make a holy hullabaloo for the sake of making a holy hullabaloo. No, we do it with understanding. And we do it under the anointing, you see. And when we do that, we release praise. We release the spirit in which God can dwell. So, just grasp this. David understood this. The occasion, you might recall, where he was bringing in the Ark of the Covenant. It had been out of Israel for many years, and they had suffered because of it. The place where it was was blessed, so David decided to be bringing in the Ark. His first attempt was disastrous. The one priest got killed. So, David learned his lesson. They got the musicians. They took it in very slowly, very stately. But in this whole procession of this ark of God's glory coming into Jerusalem. David was dancing. David was dancing. And you see, he wasn't just dancing very sedately and very in order. He was going wild. How do we know that? Well, he danced with all his might. And what that might translates into, he did it with complete abandonment to the extent and bear in mind, the men wore skirts in those days, a kind of a skirt, to the extent that he exposed himself publicly. How do we know that? Well, he had a wonderful, fine time with this ark coming in, but when he got home, guess what? There was Wafi, Michal. She wasn't too happy. In fact, she was quite grumpy. And what she said to him is, you really made a fool of yourself by exposing yourself to the maidens of Israel. Well, David's reply was tough tacky. Good for you. 
If you think that's not bad enough, wait until I really get going, basically. And the fact is that from that day on, she never bore any more children. She was barren. There's a lesson here, you see. There's a lesson here. Now, I'm not suggesting we dance to the extent that we're in embarrassment. No, not at all. But what I'm saying is there needs to be liberty before God. And very often the enemy will come with pride, you see, and try to stop us. We need to break that down if we want God's presence. We need to break that down. But let's just grasp the essence of the praise that God wants. He wants liberated praise. Where you and I are not worried what anybody thinks. All we are concerned about is rejoicing before our God. You see, and that's very important. There are a few other words that I'd like to just cover. There's so much more we could say. We can't do it here. But there's a word, go. Very interesting word. Very often translated as rejoice. Rejoice. Whenever you see the phrase, the earth rejoices, you'll know that that word ghoul is there. And what's very instructive about the word ghoul, written in English, G-U-R-L, what's very interesting about it is that it's described as to spin around under the influence of a violent emotion. To spin around under the influence of a violent emotion. Very often in the book of Psalms, you'll see the psalmist writes, the earth rejoices, the earth ghouls. They knew. Maybe they didn't even know, but God knew, and God wrote that the world, this is now centuries before the birth of Christ, millennia before man knew that the earth was a sphere, years before that, they were describing the earth as something that spun around. So just think about it. You and I are sitting on a planet that spins around under the influence of a violent emotion. There's space for that, did you know? When you and I are ghoul before God. I've done it on a few occasions. Oh, myself. You'll feel the power of God come through you. All I'm trying to get at is, you see, we, we're not supposed to be, how should I say, regimental and say, we've got to do this, got to do this. No, these are things we can do. Things you and I can experiment with individually and church situations. But they're all things we can do, and there's a reason for it. God wants to be with his people. The other one I want to mention is the word yada. Yada is translated as praise and worship, but it speaks about stretching out the hands. Stretching out the hands. It's quite contentious in some circles. You see people talking about the Pentecostal movement, and one of the signifying features was, People raising their hands in church, you see. And some people would have said, well, that's emotionalism and it's not necessary. God can see us anyway. But did you know it's very, very biblical to stretch out the hands? There are a number of reasons for it. And perhaps the understanding is very similar to this whole business of liberated praise, the understanding of surrender, you see. It's universally understood. When one army wants to surrender to another, they stick up their hands, as if to say, we're not coming with any agenda here. We're not armed. We're coming. We're relying on you. We're depending on you. That needs to be our attitude with God, you see. The Bible speaks about it, to stretch out the hands. You might say, oh, well, that's Old Testament. Well, for your information, it's not Old Testament only. Paul the Apostle picked up on this. He wrote to Timothy. 
Let's just go there quickly. 1 Timothy 2, and it's verse 8. This is Paul writing instructions to Timothy, who was pastor of a New Testament church, all right? The church in Ephesus, which he took over. And this is Paul's instruction to Timothy, what he must do in this church of his. All right? 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere. should be men's prayer meetings going on all the time. But now listen to this. This is what Paul expected there to be happening in these prayer meetings. Lifting up holy hands. See that? Without anger, without wrath and doubting. Do you see that? Lifting up holy hands. God wants to have the men specifically, but not just the men, the whole of the church, surrendering to him, you see. Surrendering. Not in anger, but in worship. Just a thought. I had a friend who was a good Christian friend. We both got saved more or less at the same time. I was in his home. We were watching a wonderful praise and worship event of some description. I can't remember which church. His father, a hardened atheist, came in and he made this comment. Looking at this video, seeing people raising their hands in worship, he made the comment, does anybody else want to go to the toilet? Can you see? His carnal mind equated raising hands with just being foolish. Well, what we've got to understand is this. That scripture goes on to say without doubting, you see. And any exercise with God for him to manifest needs to demonstrate and in demonstrating releases faith. Now you see, here we are in a room we cannot see God, but we know that he's there, according to the scriptures, you see. We know he's there. When we lift up our hands, what do we do? We're operating in faith. Can you see that? We're lifting hands to the God we cannot see. Can I tell you, the moment you know with the right attitude, lift our hands to the God we cannot see. We release faith, and the God we cannot see makes himself real to us. We become aware of his presence. I've seen this happen so many, many times. Anyway, once again, something that you and I can do. If we want to praise God according to the scriptures, the Bible in the book of Psalms often speaks of lifting up holy hands. Often. Not only there, there are many other demonstrations of this throughout the Old Testament. But there's one more that I want to touch on, also, you might say, quite controversial, and that's clapping hands. Clapping hands. Isaiah 55 verse 12 speaks about the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Trees of the fields, in this respect, refers to nations, peoples, vast people groups clapping their hands. Now, we all know the phrase, and I've often mentioned it, very often as a term of derision, the Pentecostal people, charismatics, if you want to call us that, are referred to as the happy clappers. The happy clappers. And you see, to the natural mind, it doesn't make sense to clap your hands in church if you have a religious understanding of church. But did you know that clapping our hands is extremely powerful spiritually? Something gets released into the spiritual atmosphere when we clap our hands, 
there's an Old Testament story. We haven't got time to go there, but just briefly. There was a terrible queen, Athaliah. When the king died, she took it upon herself to murder all his offspring, every one of his male children, because she wanted to be the queen, you see. And she didn't want any competition, legitimate competition. One of the priests very wisely hid one of the little boys. And later on, that priest organized for that boy to be installed, anointed as king. He organized with the temple guard and with the priests, etc. And this event took place. And Athaliah got to hear about it. She got very upset. And the instruction that the priest gave to all the guards and the priests was to clap their hands, you see, and to shout. As they clapped their hands and shouted, this wicked queen was exposed. She appeared. And they were able to take her and cast her down and to destroy her, basically. The symbolism is that when you and I, with the anointing, now please understand, it's not just clapping willy-nilly. It's with this understanding we clap with purpose. We're actually exposing the enemy. And when the enemy is exposed, he's weakened. It's a very powerful thing to do, actually. Very often when I'm praying, I'll clap my hands. I'll make a statement and I'll clap my hands. I believe those prayers are empowered. And anointing is really. One other I'd just like to mention before we do close is Zamar. Zamar means literally to strike a string with a hand, you see, with the fingers. Now in that day and age they had harps, of course, but do you know God was looking down the centuries to the day when we'd have guitars in general and electric guitars in particular? Do you know something? Under the anointing, there's a power that is released when any stringed instrument that would include violins, etc., when it's struck, when that vibration is set in motion, it resonates in the spirit realm and it has an effect. So there we have it. A few ideas. God's not averse to guitars in church or drums for that matter or any other instrument that can make a wonderful noise. And may we all just be clamorously foolish as we enjoy our God and expect Him to pitch up in all of His glory. In the wonderful name of Yeshua. Amen.